Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. And in our tiny studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., your nation's capital, we've got with us again David Sanger of the New York Times and Ben Wittes of the Lawfare blog, the Lawfare podcast, Rational Security podcast, the Brookings Institution, and a host of other affiliations that are happy to be affiliated with um, Ben. Uh, You know, we talk a lot about scandal. We talk a lot about problems uh, in the Trump administration that seem very, very domestic. But some of these issues have far-reaching consequences uh, in terms of foreign policy, American standing. Uh, And among some of the ones that are most concerning to me as I look at it are how the U.S. national security community is functioning. Uh, And, you know, one of the big things is that the president of the United States on a regular basis has said that despite the assurance of all of the agencies and all of the leadership of the national security community, he doesn't believe that that necessarily that Russia actually hacked the U.S. election. Um, And in the past few days, we've seen his new communications director come out and revealed that that is still the president's view. Um, And we have seen at the Aspen Strategy uh, Forum, uh, former heads uh, of the the national security establishment also say that they just, there is no excuse for the position that the president is taking. Uh, It's got to have the effect of alienating the intelligence community. Ben, you have a lot of exposure to that group. So do you, David. I'd be interested in your takes on where this has us right now. Well, let me start only because I was out at Aspen last week, uh, David, for the security forum. And it wasn't just the formers, although John Brennan was there and um, uh, James Clapper, the former uh, CIA director and and DNI. But the current CIA director, uh, Pompeo, Mike Pompeo was there. Um, the current DNI uh, was there, Dan Coates. Um, the current head, current and former head of the, or during the Obama administration, head of the National Security Agency, Mike Rogers was there. Uh, Tom Bossert was there, the Homeland Security and Cyber uh, person at the White House. And as we did these public interviews, you know, up on the stages with each one of them, and they're all downloadable, um, we all uh, asked. The question early on in the interviews, you've seen the intelligence, you've been, you've had access to the deepest part of this intelligence. Do you have any doubt the Russians were involved? Every one of them said 
they have absolutely no doubt that the Russians are involved. These are the people who are briefing President Trump each and every day. And they would not let themselves get into the trap of saying, well, it could have been the Russians, could have been the Chinese, could have been the Iranians, the North Koreans, could have been a fat guy in New Jersey on his bed. None of that. They said the Russians did this. End of story. And the contrast between that and then President Trump repeating this weekend raises the question, why is it that Trump can't sort of acknowledge this? And we got a little bit of an answer, one we've long suspected, from Anthony Scaramucci, the new communications director, on TV this weekend. He went on CNN. I think it was State of the Union. And he said, you know, when the president hears intelligence about Russia, what he's thinking is they're trying to delegitimize my election. And that's certainly been my experience in dealing with President Trump over these past, you know, year or so of the of the investigation. He is not capable of saying two things can be true. A, that the Russians came in and attempted to influence the election and B, that they failed and he was legitimately elected anyway. But he, he simply can't bring himself to do A for fear that people will not believe B. Although I will – let me say, add a couple things to that, which is – so I don't think he's entirely wrong in, in that judgment. Uh, I think he's obviously entirely wrong in the factual judgment. But you know, he won uh, in an extremely close race. One of, the, one, of the, one of the features of this insecurity is that he always mag- intensifies and magnifies the margin of victory. Uh, but he actually, you know, of course, lost the popular vote, and he won because of narrow marginal uh, victories in three states. And once you believe that the Russians were strategically releasing information in an effort to advantage him in those, uh, you know, in in marginal ways in important places, the question of do they uh, did they advantage him enough to make a difference in in those jurisdictions is at least an in, as interesting a question as how important was, for example, the statement that Jim Comey made uh, in late October or how important was uh, you know the deficiencies of Hillary Clinton's responses to certain things. And this is a very complicated uh, multi-causal, uh, moment in which a very large number of variables accounts for relatively small number of votes. And I think once you acknowledge that the Russians interfered in an effort to advantage him at the expense of the opponent, what you find is that the question of did they do so successfully is actually unanswerable because it involves the aggregated decisions of relatively small number of voters who are extremely hard to identify. But, but because it is unanswerable, Ben, it doesn't actually threaten the legitimacy of his presidency. Right, but merely it, to have to have the conversation I, 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 uh, ra- I get it, raises a legitimacy problem it. that a, a strong president – actually doesn't perceive. And a, a strong president would say, you know, we've got the wrong commission. We're spending our time examining the question of whether there were three million votes that should have gone to Donald Trump that somehow were being cast by illegal immigrants someplace or another against Donald Trump. 
Whereas the commission you see, need to have is, okay, the Russians didn't actually affect or we have – we can't prove that they affected the outcome of this election. It's an unknowable fact. But we do know, as Jim Comey said, they're coming back and others are coming back too. So let's focus our commission on sealing this place up before they do. Agreed 100 percent and I would actually go further, which is that there actually is a president whose election – recent president whose election was affected by a much deeper legitimacy problem than, than that would be George W. Bush. And I think he handled it with enormous class, by the yep. way. He simply never acknowledged it as an issue, never denied that the race in Florida was extremely close, that it was uncountable by uh, – you know, he never denied the premise and he simply said, guess what? We had an election and under the rules of the election, I That's won and I'm going to function like a president. And by the way, that was exactly the right thing for him to do. And you know the 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 oddity of Trump's behavior is that he uh, makes it an issue every time he does it. That's right. absolutely right. I was White House correspondent when uh, President Bush uh, won in uh, two thousand and the two thousand election. I was there the night in Texas where he find where they finally resolved the Supreme Court decision and and all that the count and if you went back and you read the speech he gave that night in the in the Capitol in Austin and you compared it to what the way president Trump is dealing with this now you see two highly contrasting ways of dealing with this problem and it, it but 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 my only point is it is a legitimacy problem if you let it be one well he's let it be one and he's yeah. let it be one that, that's a very reasonable point uh, so one other point I want to add here, um, which is, you know, David has talked uh, about the reaction of the intelligence community leadership, uh, and the intelligence community leadership. Uh, it's what's important to understand about them is that they have constituencies, and the constituencies are the people in their agencies. And when you know, when you come into office as the president of the United States and the first thing you do is you challenge and treat dismissively uh, the work product and judgment of agencies that really have no purpose other than producing such work product and, and, and judgment for the benefit of decision makers like you and you in particular, that is really, really noticed by the constituencies that, that these people uh, whether it's you know Mike Pompeo or Dan Coates have to go back and represent, and so when they go to Aspen and um, and defy the president because that's what they did, you have to understand what they're actually doing is not simply expressing a disinterested sense of what the right answer is. No, they're not they're talking to us. They're talking back it, home. They're talking back to their agencies and they're saying to their people, "We've got your back." Um, and that even in an environment in which your service is disrespected by the White House and disrespected by the president of the United States, I am representing you. Well, you know, it's very clear that the president obviously is worried about his legitimacy. I, we could get into some psychological analysis of this because I think throughout his life he's wanted to prove that he belonged and was at a certain level that 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 many people at those levels felt he was he he was not actually part of but let's set all that aside this is obviously a big issue when Jared Kushner went out on the you know White House lawn after his 
his testimony uh, uh, on the Hill. Um, he 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 talked about the legitimacy of his father-in-law's victory and that discussing Russia impugns the legitimacy of the victory. So clearly this is a psychological issue, but there are, as you guys suggest, ways of dealing with it. But Trump goes further in dealing with the intelligence side of this, um, and that is that they have alleged um, that you know, if the Russians really did this, we wouldn't know about it because the Russians are so good uh, at doing this kind of stuff. Uh, and that he, you know, is touting the quality of the Russian security services, even as he is essentially denying or, or challenging the credibility of every senior intelligence community leader in the U.S. Yes, he so very much a step further. He very much seized on this argument that Putin made to him, uh, and he's made it to many people since he saw Putin. Began making it within hours of the time that he saw Putin, and it fundamentally misunderstands what this cyber attack was all about. There it was are, noisy on purpose. Yes, that's right. So there are stealthy. Cyber attacks. And initially, the attack on the DNC was supposed to be stealthy. And had it not been picked up by a foreign intelligence service that then told the NSA, it might have remained that for a while. That's what started what became the incoherent FBI investigation that lasted nine months of lost phone calls back and forth with some uh, you know, IT uh, guy in the basement of the DNC. So um, – It started as an effort to be quiet and stealthy. When the GRU came in in the spring of 2016 to grab this stuff and try to begin to publish it through Guccifer 2.0, through DC leaks, all these outside fronts and then ultimately through WikiLeaks, it was deliberately supposed to be, as Ben put it, a noisy attack. There was no way to cover their tracks and the fact that he – either didn't know that or said he didn't, tells me that he may not have thought thoroughly about what this attack was all about. Well, and he may not be listening or clearly is not listening to the people who have been saying this very clearly for months and months and months. And, you know, I I, I think that the fact that, you know, we have a direct line of communication here, and I, I, it's worth pausing over because I think it's genuinely upsetting, which is Vladimir Putin tells the president something. The president tells Anthony Scaramucci something. And Anthony Scaramucci goes on CNN and says he's been told this by an unnamed source whom he then outs as the president of the United States when Jake Tapper asks him. And that is – I mean (laughs) – David, do you think I'm being unfair? But that seems like a direct line of communication between Vladimir Putin and the American people through the president of the United States. Pretty close. But I actually do believe wow. that Trump believed the argument. Well, but but that's sort of the problem, right? Yeah. He has his whole intelligence apparatus telling him one thing and he has the president of Russia telling him another thing and he believes the president of Russia. But But Trump has a history of selectively believing what suits his argument. He, you know, doesn't believe in climate change. He doesn't believe vaccines help people and he believes they give, you know, autism. Um, David, you know, this he, is not he, a defense. 
No, I understand. <laughs> I'm just saying. I get. I get it. I picked up on that. I'm just saying. You know, it's you know. I'm this, just teasing. This you. guy is 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 you know spends all his life sort of rationale shopping and going out and then you know trying to you know create a structure whether it involves facts or lies that support it. But in the case of Putin, he just buys Putin's talking points one at a time on every single issue. Um, from Syria to Crimea to, you know, the hack. Um, and it must make it very difficult for folks in the intelligence community um, uh, to get their jobs done. I, I think the same is true, by the way, for folks in the NSC. David Sanger, you're, you're hanging out in places like that all the time. But it seems to me like, you know, H.R. McMaster did what he was asked to do, get together a pretty decent team, he had to stick with some of the losers that Flynn had, but he's he's brought some decent people in. He's trying to have a process. He's drawing on his experience. Um, but the president doesn't bring him to key meetings. Uh, the president uh, and his staff, um, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, often, you know, slight them in, in comments. It doesn't seem like it's taken. Doesn't seem like the president or the those close to the president want professional input, and and there's even another example of that recently with regard to the Iran deal, where apparently the White House has taken the Iran deal, nuclear deal evaluation, out of the hands of the State Department and brought it into a bunch of a few not terribly well qualified hawks in the White House, who themselves had to conclude in the end that within the four corners of the deal. The Iranians were actually complying with it, which is where they came out again. Um, you're right. Uh, the president is selective in picking his intelligence. He doesn't like what the intelligence agencies tell him about Russia, but he's completely prepared to believe anything they tell him about Iran and North Korea. Um, this strikes me as somewhat odd, but uh, it's the way things are. In the policy process itself, you know, once these policies start in the NSC, they follow a predictable path. You have people lay out what they believe the nation's uh, national interests are. That may differ some from the Obama time to the Trump time. Certainly would seem to given uh, Mr. Trump's speeches and interviews on foreign policy last year. Then you go try to work out operational uh, objectives and then you come up with policy options to give to the president. It's all pretty standard and it's been done that way since the NSC was created in the 1940s as a much smaller organization than it is today. That doesn't happen to be the way Donald Trump makes decisions. Donald Trump makes decisions from his gut as he's often said. He has got certain emotions and preset ideas about things. You can argue with him. We saw Jim Mattis tell him, no, sir, torture doesn't work. I'll get more with a can of Coke and a pack of cigarettes out of somebody than I will get out of them from uh, using torture. And Trump will say, as he said to us at a lunch at the New York Times before he was uh, inaugurated, hey, Matt has changed my view of this. And two months later, he's back saying We're, torture works. So he's got some preset things in his head whether he's talking about Jeff Sessions, whether he's talking about Afghanistan, whether he's talking about the Iran deal, which he considers to be the worst negotiated deal. 
And then they run up against this series of professionals coming and saying, well, sir, you could drop out of the Iran deal. By the way, did we mention to you that the day you do that, it also frees the Iranians to go resume the production of uranium and plutonium and they can get back into the bomb business as quickly as they want to? Just before you throw this thing overhang side, let's think this thing through a chess move or two ahead. And that is what you're seeing stopping him, including in the Iran case. Well, so you were in Aspen last week and you're hanging out with all these guys and they're enjoying all the Aspen air and all that other stuff. Hey, I have to tell but you, one day the cappuccino get... machine broke down, OK? So it wasn't it wasn't That's all actually right. specific. There's a specific provision on that in the Geneva Convention. Is there? Yeah, on, on the cappuccino machine? Yeah, you were actually yeah. subjected yeah. to a grave breach yeah, of the okay. Geneva Convention. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a form of torture for all you sort of guys. But but you're out there and you're talking about this stuff. Are are all the Trump team members that you're talking about um, uh, sounding like they think things are working and getting better? Are they making excuses for the administration and saying they're defending it? Or behind closed doors, are you getting the vibe that there is this sense of frustration? Um, both, that uh, they are frustrated in part because the Russian stuff has sucked all the air out of the room and is taking up a lot of decision time and attention time at the top. At the same time, they believe that but for their presence, you would have no policy process underway. You wouldn't be getting this stuff done. And it's no particular surprise these decisions have come back into the National Security Council because there's no one at the State Department. And there are relatively few people who are appointed to the political positions of the Defense Department. And so really the only way you can actually get a decision done is through the policy process in the NSC. And we've had ambassadors – But there is no policy. What policy? What policy process? Well, what are I'll, they getting done? I'll, Just I'll, name something. I'll, I'll, let, me, let me name two or three. I'll give you three. OK. There is an Afghan process. The president may not like it. It may end up with a conclusion that he either rejects or signs on to grudgingly. But there's been a process. And was described, and was described today in Politico as a shit show. Right. I, I can give that's you That's not inconsistent that's with not the policy all process. Right. I mean, I, the Syria policy process during the Obama days, you would use a different phrase for that? Okay. So no. um, North Korea? No, nor, nor, by the way, nor, by the way, would I use a different phrase for the Afghan policy process during the Obama days. But go Actually, on. I would say that the Afghan policy process during the Obama days was relatively orderly, came up with a perfectly reasonable strategy that was a total failure. Uh, and predictably, well, no, a total it was failure. relatively it was it was relatively orderly, except for the last three months where it kept changing. And then between the time it finished and the time the president made an announcement, he changed it yet again. So it appeared orderly, but it was actually chaotic. But in any event, in any event, um, and I'll give you two more: North Korea, which has been the subject of of policy review since the first days of the presidency at President Obama's urging to President Trump. And they now have a series of contingency plans about what they do if things go south. What they don't have is a political plan to keep them from going south. And uh, last, uh, every new administration is required to go put together a new national security strategy for the United States. You'll remember in the Bush days, that's what brought up the preemption strategy. 
in the Obama days, it's what brought up here are a bunch of non-traditional things that we think are highly important to national security, climate change, migration, so forth and so on. McMaster has started that process. He's hired people. He's gotten them going. And it's going to be fascinating when it's all done to see whether the final document reads more like Steve Bannon drafted it or more like H.R. McMaster drafted it. Well, that is a, a, a defense of the administration processes uh, that is much stronger than I uh, had, had It's had not expected. of the administration processes. It is, it is of what's going on in the White House amid all the internecine warfare on everything else. Well, right. But I guess what I'm getting at is that it suggests that there are processes, but it doesn't actually deal with the fact that even when there are vestiges of process, they then get ignored by the president and those around them. And so they might as well not be taking place. We don't know yet because we haven't seen what the final Afghan strategy is. They're going to be forced to a North Korea strategy because these guys aren't stopping their nuclear tests and their missile tests. So, you know, it's a little early to say whether or not the, the process yielded a policy. It's another thing then to say, does the policy bear any resemblance to solving the problem? Well, and also, I mean, I think it's possible to put in place a process to come up with a policy. Uh, whether and I agree with you that there is going to be action with respect to North Korea because the events will force there to be action. Whether those actions are approximately related to the policy and whether the policy uh, or to the process that led to some sort of a policy judgment and whether that policy judgment reflects anything like a strategy is a, is a, is a very different set of questions that we have to watch that process and its relation to subsequent actions to have any real sense of. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that when you have somebody as mercurial as the president uh, you know, responding to events, that you can have all the process that you want, but it may or may not have anything to do with the actions you end up taking. That said, it's good that they have yeah. a process because that process will at least mean that the president is confronted by well-thought-through options. That's right. And, you know, in the Syria case in Obama's time, the process said – it concluded that, we, that the United States would whack the Syrians if they used chemical weapons. And at the last minute, the president decided to go another way. Right. The process is not <laughs> well, designed to produce the, particular outcomes. The process is designed to give the president good options. And to air all of the, well, the various uh, possibilities. I, I would argue – that the process doesn't exist absent the president and that the way the United States government is structured, the process is set up to serve the president. Some presidents seek alternatives. Those That's the best way to use the process so that they can make informed choices. Some presidents seek validation for the choices that they make, less good approach. But most presidents, in fact, almost all presidents with few exceptions, tend to connect themselves to the process, view themselves as part of the process, and end up acting in some way that's related to the process. If the president does not do that, then the process is lacking the vital last step. And so I, I find this notion that somehow the process can exist successfully without the president's involvement in it to be a little abstract and unrealistic. Well, when, you know, 
my uh, I, I think the words abstract and unrealistic are are often attached to my name. Actually, I usually, <laughs> I usually, I usually attach them to Rothkoff's name. I've, I've never actually yeah, attached them. Yeah, well, to you do, and I was not. <laughs> I was just absorbing was not, the the criticism I cheerfully. Was not, I was not actually offering anything in the way of ad hominem criticism. But no, just I, I was note, joking. Just, just the idea that somehow that there is a process that I just don't see a lot of evidence because I do feel that the president plays a important connective role. I also feel, by the way. That you know, one of the, the 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 fatal flaws of most broken processes in the United States government is that there is a back channel, an alternative approach, something that does not actually take place within the process that can undermine the process. And in this administration, one of the things that we heard very you know sort of you know sort of three months ago was that having this duplicative. Uh, strategies group with Bannon and Gorka and so forth uh, was, um, you know, going to be set aside because it was undercutting the NSC. And that was a sign of McMaster's power. But the reality is that Bannon is still there. Gorka is still there. Some of these other um, Bannon, Gorka, Flynn-like characters are still there. Stephen Miller is still there and so forth. And 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 that suggests to me that the back door is still there. And isn't that what's happening on the Iran deal, David? The Iran deal, I think, is a little bit different because they know the outcome they want and they can't figure out how to get there. Okay? There is not a whole lot of enthusiasm for the Iran deal in this White House. There are a group of people, McMaster, Tillerson among them, who have warned that as in healthcare, before you throw out your existing deal, you need something to go replace it with. And they don't have one in either case. So their strategy has become, let's talk about all of the bad things in the world the Iranians are doing, and there's no shortage of them that are outside the deal. Missile launches, human rights violations. One of the few places in the world where this administration has a touching interest in human rights is Iran. You don't hear a whole lot about it in China or Russia, but Iran's got a real uh, issue there, including American hostages they're holding on to, who the administration said as recently as Friday they had to go uh, turn over. Uh, their military activity in Syria, the use of these proxy militias, their harassment of shipping out in the Persian Gulf. There's a long, long list. And the answer to each one of those is, yes, those were not covered in the Iran deal. No one ever conceived of having a total deal with Iran that was complicated enough just to strike one on their nuclear activities. But then ask yourself, if you're facing an Iran that is active in Syria, resurgent in the region, causing trouble, do you want that to be an Iran with nuclear weapons or an Iran without nuclear weapons? And obviously you want it to be one without because the the adversary with a nascent nuclear program that you don't know what to do with is called North Korea. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the intel community. We've talked a little bit about the NSC. We've talked about the shadow NSC, and we've talked about the president in terms of how this national security establishment is functioning in the midst of all of this. We have just five minutes left, and there's one part of the national security establishment we haven't talked about, but I would love to hear your views on it. Is that um, Deep State Radio? And that is... 
That no, the deep state radio we don't we do, we don't discuss. Um, we we have a great deal of influence, and we keep that to ourselves. But um, uh, literally as well as figuratively. But uh, no, I mean the State Department. Um, I will offer you two words. Please react, Rex Tillerson. Well, the, I think CNN this weekend may have coined the term Rexit uh, as what they're expecting. Um, uh, at least it was brilliant. I have to say, yeah, I heard yeah. that and I said, "Boy, I really wish I had thought of that." Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure that I, I whether somebody else may have thought of it earlier, but I, but I, it brought a smile to my lips. Look, um, the State Department is probably more than any other agency in the federal government experienced a real crisis uh, in this administration. And you know you can see that in the poll data of State Department employees. Um, you can see it in the incredible number of people who signed that dissent memo cable. You can see it in um, the uh, incredible leaking of uh, anger and discontent uh, and bureaucratic uh, uh, ferment. Uh, and so Rex Tillerson is caught between a bureaucracy that he has failed to represent in the way that Coates and uh, Pompeo have went to Aspen and represented their employees. Uh, Tillerson is not thought of, I think, within the State Department as somebody who represents the workforce of the State Department uh, and a president who keeps undercutting him in, in important diplomatic overtures and public settings. And, uh, and I think if you're somebody who's used to running a company like Exxon, again, you have to ask this question, why on earth would you want to be in that position over any length of time? And what the recent stories have uh, suggested is that the answer to it may be that you don't. And you know, that's, that's the best I can do with that. It's, it, there's no agency that where morale, I think, has suffered, except maybe, you know, like, uh, the, the the Department of Education or the, the like the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department, but you know, sort of places where you know people's morale has really, really injured in the foreign policy space. There's really nothing like the State Department right now. I think uh, Ben's right on that, and I agree with everything he said about uh, the way Tillerson has gone about representing uh, Trump's interests in the department itself and this budget cuts we've referred to and this reorganization plan for which I have a little bit of sympathy because when you look at the at the State Department, it is fundamentally organized for the diplomatic challenges of 1958 and uh, the, the concept that the place needs to be blown up a bit and reorganized is right but it's got to be reorganized with the thought that it has a vital role in the security of the United States. And so what it means that the president turns out a national security budget that increases the Pentagon dramatically and cuts the State Department by 30 percent tells you where the president views uh, the State Department. I think Tillerson has made three critical, perhaps major uh, uh, decisions and errors along the way. First is he has forgotten that the role of the Secretary of State is to be the principal spokesman of American foreign policy. Uh, 
There is certainly nothing in the way he has operated in the past five months that would make us immediately associate him with that role. Secondly, in his desire not to get too far out of the ahead of the president, he's decided to freeze out any real discussion of his own thinking, his own priorities, what he's doing. He said at one point to a reporter, one of the few he let along the plane, when I need to say something to the press, I'll call them in and talk to them. And that means that you've gotten almost no stories that describe to you how he goes about viewing a problem. Now, that could be a bunch of whiny – that could be one whiny reporter, me. Uh, and you hear this from a lot of my repertorial colleagues. But it does tell you something that we cannot give you a sense of what his instincts are the way we could have about John Kerry or Colin Powell or Henry Kissinger or anybody else who went out and tried to explain his thinking along the way. Third big mistake I think that uh, he's made <clears throat> is that he operates in such a tight circle on the seventh floor, largely with the help of Brian Hook, his um, very talented uh, head of uh, policy planning and his uh, chief of staff, uh, Margaret Petterlin, that the people who are career State Department officials who have spent their lives examining Afghanistan or living there or Iran or North Korea or you name the hotspot feel like they're not being consulted at all. And they're sort of asking the question, why am I coming to work every day? So I just want to amplify on one thing that David said, which is error number two. Uh, you know, when the State Department is the only major federal government agency that does nothing but talk and that's not – I don't mean that in a dismissive way but diplomacy is talking to people. That's, that's what it is and actually that's all it is. And if you think about it in contrast to the other security agencies that we've been talking about, DOD you know, runs military operations and you know, sends troops places and kills people. Uh, the Justice Department, you know, files lawsuits and litigations and, and indictments, and you know, it, it has a real uh, 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 set of actions that it takes in court. The CIA steals secrets and you know analyzes the fruits of that. And the State Department talks to people. That's what it does. And develops policy in the interest of the United States. And develops policy largely in how to interact with other governments in the form of talking to them. Yep. So that's meta-talking, right? Talking about how to talk. Well, oh, hopefully talking with a purpose. Sure. No, no, all of it is with a purpose. As it, opposed to say what we do for a living. Right. We're, we're, <laughs> we're even worse. Um, if you take the talking to people uh, out of what the State Department does, talking about U.S. policy, say to the press – You've actually denuded it of a lot of the substance of what it does and I think it reflects a weird uh, a weird understanding of the State Department's role that when the secretary travels, he actually doesn't want to bring the press with him because there's no function that the US government plays that – more lends itself to being accompanied by people who are going to talk about what you're talking about than uh, than the State Department function. And I just, you know, I think among the errors that he's made, uh, that's a really hard one to defend. Okay, so you know, I before I you know have to deal with the uh, emails and tweets of 
people who work in USAID who note that development is an important part of what the State Department does and that there are budgets associated with it or people who Were budgets associated with it, yeah. (laughs) Well, there there still are. Or, Or people who negotiate treaties or people who help people get in and out of the United States or people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Talking is an important part of what the State Department does. Uh, it is a vital tool. Public diplomacy is vitally important, as are a number of other uh, related aspects of this. And certainly uh, Ben's point about denuding the Department of its power is uh, a salient one in this context. Well, look, we've just taken a, a, a kind of a quick tour of the national security establishment at the current moment and talked about areas of weakness and some areas where we think things are functioning. Uh, and while there was a sort of slight range of views, I, I, I think it's fair to say that the general consensus is that uh, things are not firing on all cylinders right now. Before we go, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I want to apologize because on Every episode of Deep State Radio so far, uh, we've uh, uh, stuck true to a rule that is a rule of mine, and that is no mannels, no panels without women. Having a woman on every broadcast is an important part of what we do. We had a technical problem today connecting to Corey, uh, and we're not going to make that mistake again. I can promise you there will never again be another episode of Deep State Radio that does not have... Um, men and women both on the show offering their perspectives. I think it's important. I think it's the only way to ensure that we've got uh, great women's voices out there. Uh, We have, as you know, several great women who are associated with this podcast. Two of them will be with us next week, both Rosa and Corey, uh, and David will be back. And we will be joined uh, for the second episode next week uh, by Graham Allison, uh, who will engage with Corey with the refereeing of the rest of us uh, in the great cage match on Thucydides that all of our deep state nerds have been waiting for. It is really the showdown of the summer and with the McMahon family who run World uh, uh, Championship Wrestling now off in the administration. It's where you come for intellectual martial arts. So come back next week to Deep State Radio for that showdown and for our discussion of whatever else is going on. Uh, And uh, before we go, let me thank again Ben, who's doing such spectacularly good work at Lawfare, David Sanger, who is uh, an institution of American journalism. Uh, Please join us again sometime soon here at Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.